said it before, say it again. I really like that you guys like talking to each other. I think it's, I think it's healthy. I think it's a good thing for the church. It's actually like each other. Um, we've got no announcements for you this morning. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, that the youth are going to head out to their class together, so let's extend our love to the youth as they make their way out. Elizabeth and, and Mike will be leading the, the youth. Shout out to Elizabeth for leading the youth and Mike Telfer for leading the youth. Before we start the, the message, I guess it's kind of the, the start to the message. Um, been in the sermon series on, on the Holy Spirit, which we've entitled The Giver of Life. And I thought it appropriate this morning that we would pause and, and be still. You know, somewhere in the range of, of a minute, just being silent before the Lord and, and saying, Father, is there anything that you want to say to us through, through the Holy Spirit? Um, you might have a, a word, you might have a, an encouraging word for a neighbor or a friend, you might have something you want to confirm or even confront in a healing and holistic kind of a way in our hearts. Let's be still. Anyone sense anything? Maybe something that the Lord, you'd be willing to maybe let us in into your own little secret place? Anything that the Lord might have said to you?
Those of you online, Isaiah 43, what, the, what was the, the whole chapter? Isaiah 43, 1 through 5, and you could spend some time on that as well. Um, again, those who are watching online. Amen. All right. Well, as we launch into the message this morning, there's this question that Amos Young presents in, in his book, Who is the Holy Spirit? And he asked this question that, that just leaped off the page for me, and, and it was this. It says, how is it that these early disciples were able to break free from the class-divided and hierarchical ordered imperial structure and live with one another as equals? And for me, it was a great question because everything around the culture of the church in, in the first century as, as the church is being launched is steeped in, in hierarchy, it's, it's steeped in, in division, it's steeped in structure, it's, right, it's steeped in classes, um, is the way that, that Rome exists around them. Yet, in some way, somehow, the church is able to be this counter-narrative in the world around them. And they are known for this radical welcome amongst them. That the church really was, as you look at historical archives, what you observe about the church is that they truly were a multi-generational and multicultural movement amongst a world where that just did not happen. In his question, Young is pointing out that it would have been incredibly difficult to live this out. Because there would have been all of the forces of the culture around you pushing you back into places of normalcy. To, to be back in alignment with the way that the culture functions. Right? If you can imagine it this way, that someone would, might observe, hey, Dominic, I noticed that you were sitting at the same table with your slave, Vince. And then respond, right? There's no way that they would respond in a way that said, would say, that's great. Keep on doing that. Because there's no way that that will rip apart the fabric of our society. Everything about society would be pushing them back to not have this, this, this standing with one another where women and men and slave and free and Jew and Gentile were seen as equal, where they sat at the same table with one another. Everything about the world around them would say, you're ruining who we are. By the way, side note, if you've ever been a part of system, family system, 
work system, if you've ever been a part of a culture where, where things operated in an unhealthy way and you started arriving in, an health, in a healthy way, Sabotage, confrontation, tension. And it's the same for the church. They're operating in a new way. They're relating with one another in a new way. And it's extremely likely that Rome would see this as a confrontation to who they are. Read through the book of Acts, and you will see riots take place. Why? Because the economic and the social structures were being challenged just by the way that the church was arriving in a healthy posture. There's this incredible quote from a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus. And he was an opponent. He was against the the movement called the church. And this is what he, he said about the church. He said, because Christians admit that ignorant people are worthy of their God... Christians show that they want to convert only foolish, dishonorable, stupid people and only slaves, women, and little children. (laughs) Celsus is observing the church, and what he's observing about the church is these followers of the way are believing that ignorant, stupid, dishonorable, lowly people have legitimacy amongst them. Because the Christians believe that their God wants to relate, interact with, hang out with. Ignorant people, that somehow they're worthy of their God. Right? He, he sees it as an affront. Sociologist Rodney Starks has some stunning observations about the composition of the church within its first 300 years. And it's stunning observations about the church, especially in light of what the surrounding culture looks like. It may be difficult to see, but I'll I'll read out some of the things that he's he's observing and looking at different sociologists and historians as they're observing what what the church looks like and what Rome looks like during during the, the time that the church is starting. One of the observations is men greatly outnumbered women in the Greco-Roman world. J.C. Russell estimated that there were 131 males per 100 females in the city of Rome and 140 males per 100 females in Italy. And this is likely, as they're observing, is likely because of some kind of tampering that was taking place with human life. And as you go further, you find, right, that exposure of unwanted female infants and deformed male infants were legally, morally accepted and widely practiced by all social classes in the Greco-Roman world. I'm sorry, I missed a line there, but um, it was infanticide that was taking place. That that females, uh, young baby girls, were being killed or being aborted because what was wanted was men. There's this little letter that was written um, 
while a man was off, we believe at war, and he writes to his wife and he says, he says, know that while I'm in Alexandra, do not worry if all the, everyone else comes back and I remain in Alexandra. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I will send it to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If, it's a, if it is a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Another observation. Amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, Today, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women. It's it's such the case that in 370 AD, the Emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damasus I requiring Christian missionaries to cease calling at the homes of pagan women. Because although some classical writers claim that women were easy prey for any foreign superstition, most recognized that Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. And we can observe this in the book of Romans. Here's another highlight for you. Because in his epistle to the Romans, Paul sent personal greetings to fifth women and 18 men. If, as seems likely, there were proportionally more men than women among those Christians of sufficient prominence to merit Paul's special attention, then the congregation in Rome must already have been predominantly female. The launch of the church was this anomaly in Rome. Were lowly, those that were on the lower rungs of society, were elevated, were welcomed, were included. Right? And it goes back to Amos Young's question. How is it that the early disciples were able to break free from the class-divided and hierarchical ordered imperial structure, and live with one another as equals. Right? There raises this question. The, the, church, the church was something unique. The, the church was something unique. How, how did they do this? Well, listen, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. And I think that kind of gives a little bit of the answer away. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Would you stand with me? It'll come up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says this. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, 
the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still, another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the many parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the, hand, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Have you ever stubbed your pinky toe? If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Father, we pray, teach us what it is to be a a new and united people. Teach us what it is to follow the movement of your spirit toward places of of unity toward the places of celebrating those others around us and so we pray that in jesus name amen amen please have a seat here's what i want to do for this morning is 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 imagine wearing the hat of of a historian or a sociologist and and you're looking at first corinthians chapter 12 
And, and, you're, and what you're attempting to do is answer Amos Young's question that he poses to us. How is it that the early disciples were able to break free from these class-divided structures that existed around them? How is it that they really were able to, to, to regard one another as equals, to, to legitimately live that out? How is it that they were able to, to live as equals with one another? And if you were to wear this sociologist or this story in hat and you were to come across 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think these are some of the conclusions you would make about the early church. And one of the first conclusions that, that you might make is, is that the church believed that their God in himself was diverse and unified. Foundationally, when you look at the church, right, and what they believe about God, you see this on display in, in verses 4 through 7. Do you notice the way that Paul describes about the distribution of the gifts to the church? This is the way that he describes about how God is distributing gifts to the church. He says, and there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. If you go back to verse 3, who is called Lord? Jesus. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, uh, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And what Paul shows to the church is as, as God is giving different gifts, diverse gifts to the diverse people, he is doing so as a diverse God who is unified in his action. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three working together perfectly to distribute gifts to the church. And, and so from the get-go, what Paul is doing is he's talking about spiritual gifts being given to the church. He is highlighting for them, do you see our triune God perfectly unified and working together, but in different ways? And the goal for the church then is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was so that the church could imitate in us the life that God experiences in himself. So what you see happening for the church is that they understand God to be three different persons, but perfectly united together. And so we live from that place because you become like what you worship. And if we adequately see, if we can properly see the love and the unity that exists within our God, we will begin to emulate that amongst us. We will understand God is the model of the good life. And so we want to learn his ways and not the ways of the culture around us. What's something else that you might observe? Remember, keep that sociologist hat on. Remember, we're asking, how is it the church was able to break free from all the division that existed among them? And the next thing that, that I think that you would observe is the church believed that their God intentionally gave them different special abilities for their good. Do you look at, do you look at verses 1 and 7? Well, you'll see. It says this. It says, now, dear... Brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't you want to misunderstand that. To each one, the manifestation is given of the, of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
And what you find at play is that the Holy Spirit is intentionally making the church diverse. It, 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 is, it is from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that he is pouring out himself, that he's being poured out upon the church, and when the Holy Spirit's being poured out of the church, the church receives different gifts than one another. Intentionally. Holy Spirit intentionally making us different from one another. And then uniting us together. I remember in Bible college, Remember sitting in, in one of my first classes, and, and I'm, I'm even relatively new to my, to my faith, and I've been only following Jesus for about two, three years, and, and then I, but I felt this, this strong call to ministry, and so I'm sitting in, in Bible college, and, and the professor gets up, and he says, you know, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor, or I want you to turn to someone in the room, and I want you now to share a prophetic word for one another. And I remember sitting in that room, just feeling so awkward. It was just like, it was, a, it, was a, it was a class on the Holy Spirit. We were studying who the Holy Spirit is, and we were studying spiritual gifts, and the professor just says, okay, go find one another and prophesy. And I remember being so uncomfortable in that moment. And I remember wrestling with it because I, I personality-wise, I'm much more analytical, I'm skeptical, I'm not... Like, like our denomination is, is charismatic Pentecostal, and there are times where I gather together with people in our movement, and I just go, this feels a little weird. This feels a little strange. And I remember just sitting in that space, just like, and I, my, my gears were turning, and what I was thinking was, are we allowed to do this? Do I just get it like, Larissa has a sister, when she was a child, she would just, she would intentionally just hold her breath until she would get, hoping that she would just get what she wanted. Like she would tell her mom, like, this is what I want. And then she would just hold her breath. And her mom took her to the doctors and was like, she just keeps holding her breath. And the doctor said, let her pass out. She'll start breathing. And sometimes in those moments, the reason I say that is that it kind of feels like that's what we were doing to God. It kind of just felt like we we're just like, I'm going to hold my breath until you give me a prophetic word, right? I was like, are we allowed? Are we allowed to do this? This doesn't feel right. But as I'm a part of this movement called Foursquare that believes in the empowering of the Holy Spirit and, and the gifting of the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ. There are times where I'm in, that, in those spaces and though I, I wrestle with, I don't know if we're, like maybe what I would say if I were the professor was turn to one another and the Holy Spirit might give you a word for one another. That's how I would personally phrase it. But if I wasn't with, but if I wasn't in this room, I would likely miss the move of the Holy Spirit because I'd be caught up too much in the analytical side of life. And, and I find myself sitting in those spaces a lot of the times and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and, and I celebrate the way that others lean 
into the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in ways that may get a little bit too much to the fringe for me, but it causes a level of awareness for me. And, 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 and the church, what the church, or what the Holy Spirit's doing amongst this church is, is, is saying, I'm, I'm making you different. And there are times it's going to make you uncomfortable. There, there are going to be times where, where, where you're going to find that, that people are going to start expressing their faith and their following of me in ways that you personally don't jive with. And, and when you look at this, listen, look at what he says all the way down in verse 27, if you could bring that up on there. He says, Paul writes to the church, he says, now you're the body of the Christ and each one of you is a part of it and God has placed in the church, first of all, prophets, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. We won't get into definitions this week. We'll get more into the definitions of spiritual gifts. What are they? How do they work? Who, who does what? And how do they hold it? And do they not? Like, am I just, if I'm a prophet, am I always a prophet? If I act, if I heal, do I always heal? Do I sometimes heal? We're not going to do any of that today. But what I want to show is this. Is the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the church And if the Holy Spirit falls on you in a certain and unique way, you're going to personally connect with that. And you're going to value that. And it's, it's, going, to be a, it's going to be a really big thing for you. And what will end up happening, right, if, if, the, if the Holy Spirit falls upon you in a way where you, you act as a teacher, you're going to, you're going to hope and believe for the church, that the church might operate in a way that connects with you personally. And so what you're going to highlight is, is the church should be a church that teaches the Word of God. And you're going to, because you're going to have this value about you because the Holy Spirit has, has fallen upon you in a way where that, that becomes something that's intimate with you in your relationship with God. If, if the Holy Spirit's fallen upon you in a way in which you act as, a, as an apostle, you act in this apostolic way, then you're going to believe and hope that the church acts in an apostolic way that goes out in the world and starting new movements and starting new churches. You want to see that take place. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has fallen upon you in that way. But here's what has happened for the big C church is that the Holy Spirit has fallen upon us a certain way, and we value that way, but then we start saying that that is the primary way that the church should act. And we start dividing from one another rather than uniting with each other because we have uniquely connected with the Holy Spirit in a certain way. And though the, the, the Spirit of God has fallen upon us, intentionally making us diverse, and we say, yes and amen, yes, the Holy Spirit makes us diverse, but the moment that we're diverse from one another, we put up walls and we run away from each other. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has intentionally made us diverse. And you could see it within the list. You can see in this list how the church has divided from one another. The church should be all about salvation. 
the church should all be all about social justice and helping people. The church should be all about focusing on the Holy Spirit. The church should be all about church planting. The church should be all about holiness. The church should be all about teaching the truth of Scripture. That's what the church should be about. And we start planting these flags in the way that says, this is my expectation of the church. And the moment that the church doesn't meet that expectation as teaching your primary gifting as their primary expression, then we end up rejecting the church. But what if the, church, what if, what if the Holy Spirit has made us diverse? so that we learn to listen to one another's voices. So that we get a better, gliss, a better, better glimpse of who God is. Right? It's that old parable of, of the four or five blind men all holding a, par, a different part of the elephant. It's, you're holding the trunk and saying it's so flexible and holding the tail is just like, it's like, kind of like a little rope or holding the leg. It's like this animal is so strong, and, right? But, but God is like intentionally pouring out his spirit and giving us a glimpse of who he is so that we might be in relationship with one another. And as we're in relationship with one another, we get a broader vision of who God is. That's the understanding. He pours out his spirit and gives us diverse gifts for our common good so that we'd be in relationship with one another. There's this article, if you go to the next slide, it's, um, it's based off this book that Richard Foster wrote called Streams of Living Water, and he looks at the essential practices from the six great traditions of the Christian faith. There's a little synopsis of it in, at renovare.org called The Six Streams, um, I, I printed off the article if you want to have a, a hard copy of it, but he just goes, around the globe, there's essentially six streams of Christianity that exist around us. And, and some of the streams are the contemplative tradition, right? Contemplative lifestyle that, that the contemplative tradition continually draws us into a love of God. The contemplative tradition is all about like be still, be silent, spiritual practices, like, like breath prayer, these, these things that you've heard us reflect on. Then there's the holiness tradition, and the holiness tradition emphasizes the reformation of our hearts. It matters how we act, how we live, right? The, the integrity. There's the spirit-empowered Tradition, the charismatic tradition focuses on the power of God's Spirit moving in and through us. There's the social justice tradition. The social justice tradition expresses the theme of justice, compassion, and peace happening in the world around us. There's the evangelical tradition, which encompasses, like, it's a focus on the good news. Let's get the gospel out to the world. Let's, let's have humanity here that they, they can have a relationship with God, and he redeems and he restores. And then there's the incarnational tradition that focuses on the relationship between the invisible spirit and the physical reality, helping us to see God's divine presence in the material world. And so these six streams exist around us, and what we end up doing is saying, you belong to that stream, and you belong to that stream, and you belong to that stream, and, 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 and there's this love, just this simple posture that Richard Foster takes. It's just essentially, what if we were to celebrate the traditions that exist around us, and we learn from one another? What, what, if, what if we celebrated the different streams that exist around us and say, and, and not do things like 
you're not following the gospel. <laughs> what have we learned from each other? And, and here's, here's the thing. What if, we, what if we were stretched in our relationship with Jesus because we started leaning into some spiritual practices that we normally wouldn't engage with? Even though they make us uncomfortable, we might give it a shot because brothers and sisters in Christ have told us, like, hey, I, found, I have found this helpful in my life. I, I, I look at all these, by the way, and I just think, I'm somewhere in, like, the contemplative charismatic. And, <laughs> and, but it's the space of saying, man, but I, I love seeing the way that the church is living out her, her faith in Jesus and learning from, from the body of Christ around us. Here's, here's the next thing that you might observe if you were in that historian hat and asking, how did the church do this? How did the church do this? The church believed people groups belonged together. This, I, I may in, in, in this point, hopefully, cause you to, to view the body of Christ in a different way. Because, and maybe, you're, maybe you've always thought about it this way, but the way that I I've, I've have, have thought about it is when Paul's talking about the body of Christ and where many, many members make up one body, I've always thought about it from an individualistic point of view. Right? That if I, Vince, am an I. I can't say to Dominic, you're an ear and I don't have need of you. But I don't think that's what Paul's communicating primarily in this passage. Because when you look at verses 12 through 14, he says, just as a body, the one has many parts. And see, this is where our Western mindset steps in, and we think many parts. We think us, me. I'm one, I'm a many part. But it all has many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized with one spirit, so as to form one body. Now listen to what he defines as the members of the body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Paul is writing to y'all. And what he's doing here in this passage is, is saying, listen, Jews, you might be the I, but you cannot say to the Gentiles, we don't have need of you. Gentiles, you may be the feet, but you cannot say to other, other people groups, we don't have need of you. You are not to go form, here's the slave church, here's the free church, here's the Jewish church, and here's the Gentile church. What Paul is writing to the church is, we are many, and when they hear we are many, they're not thinking individualistic. 
they are thinking, I belong to a family, I belong to a people, I belong to a culture. That is who I am, is who we are. And we can not divide the body of Christ up. I'm convinced that that's how the church would have heard this. Don't go form your separate churches. You actually need one another. You need to be gathered with each other. And here's, here's what's... Oh, here's a real reflection from Gordon, Gordon Fee. In his book, Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God, he says, homogeneous churches lie totally outside of Paul's frame of reference. After all, such churches cannot maintain the unity of the Spirit that either Ephesians 2 and 4 or 1 Corinthians 12 calls for. Essentially, if, if you're all one type of people, unity is impossible because you're not diverse. Paul's writing to a diverse people, and he's saying, be one. Be united together. It, on, the day, on the day of Pentecost, man, the Holy Spirit was in his bag on the day of Pentecost. Like, it was, it was his day, right? Like, you could see, you, you could see just him falling upon the world, and, and it just being this, this incredible moment that, that takes place. This is on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a wide variety of people groups, And then go to the next slide. This is what happens. This is what happens. The Holy Spirit falls upon the, falls upon the body of believers. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon the body of believers, the surrounding culture looks at what's taking place, and here's what they, they conclude. It says, here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. 17. It's a list of 17 different people groups or cultures. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. One of the defining moments on the day of Pentecost, 17 people groups, all together, hearing about the wonderful things about, about God. Day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit falls upon the church, and immediately what you find is from day one, they're a diverse church. And can you imagine, he's our pastor and director of operations in the back, can you imagine the administrative nightmare if day one of the launch of a church there were 17 different languages that were being spoken? How do you, what does the website look like? What does children's ministry look like? A potluck would be incredible. It'd be amazing. Launch of the church immediately. Holy Spirit falls upon the church. This is how I'm going to birth the church. It's going to be diverse. Do you know how much the New, Te New Testament, if you were to read the New Testament, the letters particularly to the church, the epistles of the New Testament, 
Do you know how much of it is written just simply telling the church, you guys need to learn how to get along with one another. And what you, what you see take place, right, is there's growing pains now in the church. There's, there's growing pains in how the church needs to interact and, 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 and be with one another and be present with each other. Why? Why is it so prevalent in the New Testament that the church is being taught you need to learn how to get along with one another because they were different? It was a diverse group of people. And there's this moment in Acts chapter 6, right, where, where prejudice seeps into the way that the church is interacting with one another. And so suddenly now the, the Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked in the distribution of the foods, and the, and, and the Hebrew-speaking widows are being given more food. And so the church, in, in its wisdom, sees a problem of disunity, and do you know what their solution is? This is their solution. We see disunity taking place, and how do we solve disunity taking place? This is what they said. The, church, the, the leaders of the church, the, the 12 disciples said, and so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and who are full of the Holy Spirit. How do we solve diversity? How do we solve the disunity that's taking place? How do we dis, how do we? How do we speak to and address the, 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 the way that the church is clashing with one another and the prejudice that exists with one another, the place that we start is with the Holy Spirit. Because what the Holy Spirit is about is unifying diverse people. Church, if we want to be a spirit-filled church, if you want to call yourself a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. You have got to love unity. You've got to value diversity. Because what the Holy Spirit is about is being poured out upon the many and bringing them together. Let's keep going. What, what are the other things that we, that we see? The, the church believed that each person is indispensable. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. You saw it from the sociologi sociologists and the historian articles. The church actually lived this out. The church had a reputation from the eyes of the surrounding world around them, man, the church, the church is filled with dishonorable people. The church is filled with little children. The church is filled with women. The church is, I mean, like the, the, the church really did believe that each person had value and worth. And while something like infanticide was prominent in the Greco-Roman world, what the church did was something completely different. They valued every single life. Every single life had worth. Every single life. Every single life was, was believed to be a contributor and, a, and, and someone of worth and value amongst the body. 
And because of that, the church was bursting at the seams, specifically with people that society disregarded. If we want to see church growth, I would suggest it starts with radical welcome. I, I, I would suggest that it starts with looking to people that we normally would look past. If we want to see robust and dy dynamic community again amongst us, I, I, I would suggest to us multicultural, multi-generational relationships. Because I think that's where we'll observe the movement of the Holy Spirit. I, I think that that's where we'll see a robust outpouring of the Spirit of God. So, so how? Practically. Practically, how? How can a diverse people come together and regard one another as equals? Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Love puts up with, every, with anything. It trusts God always. Always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Paul, in genius, intentionally ties out, this is what it looks like for the Spirit of God to fall upon the church, and he follows it up with, we've got to love. Because if love is fractured, then us seeing the pouring out of God's Spirit, that'll be broken. For Paul, there are two sides of the same coin. We've got to learn what it is to be patient with one another, to be kind, to make space for each other's faults. We've got to learn what it is to celebrate when other, someone else gets a promotion and we don't. We've got to learn what it is to, 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 to make space for other people's opinions and the way that they're seeing things. Like, we've got to be a people that value others. We've got to be a people that, 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 that love turning to people that don't look like us or don't, don't live like us. We've got to be a people that just like genuinely love Others, we've got to love. We've got to love. I mean, Jesus, when he told, he talked to the church, is like, man, if you hold on to unforgiveness, the way that that impacts your relationship with the Lord, with my Father, I mean, he just, we've got to learn what it is to be in relationship with each other. We've got to learn what it is to be united together. Here's, here's the truth. 
these six different streams of Christianity, us differently spirit-empowered people, different people groups. This is the list that is essential. What, what should the church be about? Should the church be about being spirit-filled? Should the church be about like charismatic movement? Should the church be about contemplative spirituality? Should the church be about holiness movement? Should the church, you know what the church needs to be about? This. This is primary. This is primary. This is who we're called to be. This is what being spirit-filled looks like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, thank you for the gift of, that it is of being called a new people. And Jesus, what I think about in this moment is, is that space in which you instruct us that if if we come to the house of worship, but we know that we, we have a brother or a sister who has an offense with us, that we're to lay down our gift and first go be reconciled before we come and worship. And Father, I pray that you would teach us to, to live with that kind of posture. Lord, if there's, there's any space in our lives in which we've, we know we've offended others, Lord, if there's any places of fracture in our life relationally, Holy Spirit, would you guide us in the way of unity and peace? Would you teach us what it is to, to love others? Father, my continued prayer for this, for this body of believers, especially as I just you know, think about 2024 and this, this election cycle that we find ourselves in, Lord, where, where the rest of the world around us, where the society around us might fracture, that our relationship would always be bigger than our problems. Teach us to love. Teach us to love, Lord, like you do. And so, Lord, I pray that what you might gift to this church is a continued understanding and experience of the love that exists in you. Would, would, would this community know the delight that you have for them? Would this church know your joy? Would this church know the way that your face lights up when, 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 you, when you see us? Would the church know the way that you are for us and you are with us? Would we this week be enveloped in your presence in a way that just causes our, our face to light up, to be filled with joy, that our bodies, whatever weight we might be carrying, that it would be lightened because we know that our God loves us. As we, as we have deeper and more dynamic experiences of your love, that it would radically change who we are. We would become like you. 
So Lord, first and foremost, show us how much you love us. So much, show us how much you are for us. Show us how much you delight in us and how much you long to be with us. And as we continue to get a taste of that, as we continue to understand how much you love us, then we would learn what it is to express that to the people around us. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.